Friends, I want to remind you we are in the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark series. Uh, we are in chapter 14, so if you want to open your Bible with me today, we're in chapter 14. We'll begin our reading in a little while about verse 12. Uh, but as we are in Mark chapter 14, chapter 14 and 15 are basically the passion account. In the other Gospels, they may take many chapters, but in the Gospel of Mark, uh, who is the briefest, most straightforward accounting of Jesus' life, it's two main chapters. It goes from uh, Jesus being anointed in Bethany all the way through the upper room and his arrest and his trial, and it goes right to uh, the crucifixion. It goes, uh, chapter 16 is the crucifixion resurrection. That's the end of the book. So uh, we're right in that account of the passion. And this morning, as I mentioned in the bulletin, uh, the sermon today, the sermon today is going to be focusing on Jesus in the upper room initiating uh, what we have called La the Lord's Supper, and that's referred to often as the Last Supper, as they celebrated that Passover meal together. And generally, it would fall just perfectly, and we would then have communion at the end of the service and, and take part, as we do regularly, in that ongoing remembrance of Jesus' death for us. But that's next week. That's next week. We are going to be on the first Sunday of November. Hard to believe it will already be here. Time Change Sunday. We are going to celebrate uh, Jesus' love for us with the bread and the cup. But today we are going to spend time, uh, more than we normally do, looking at that event itself. And as I mentioned, that event is rooted in God's Word, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Passover celebration. It has its roots all the way back in the book of Exodus as God delivered the children of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. We know the plagues came upon the land. God did incredible wonders and signs to uh, soften Pharaoh's heart, but his heart remained hard till finally the final plague was the angel of death which passed over the land and took the firstborn of the families. God, to protect his people, said, you have to take that Passover or that lamb, that spotless, perfect lamb, you need to shed its blood, put the blood on the doorpost, and the angel will pass over the house and you'll survive unscathed which gives the celebration its name of the Passover. But it also included a memorial meal that God himself initiated where they would not only shed the blood of that perfect lamb, but they would then gain sustenance for a journey. They would eat the lamb in haste. And we find that in Exodus chapter 12. I'll just read a few verses from that, that chapter. It says that same night... That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And it says that they should eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It gives direction and it gives the elements of that memorial meal in that longer passage in chapter 12. It says you're supposed to eat it with your traveling clothes on, your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, not relaxing at table. You're to eat it in haste because it's the Lord's Passover. Get ready to go. And we know in those three elements, there's only the three there. There's the Passover lamb, the meat that is eaten. There is the unleavened bread because uh, it 
symbolized the haste that they left in. There was no time to add yeast and let the bread rise and then bake the bread. That was traveling bread, flat bread. The Jews today call it matzah bread. And then there were the bitter herbs, which reminded them of the bitterness of their slavery. And they needed reminding because it's not long they're on that journey to the promised land that they start to long for the good old days back in Egypt when they were slaves and they had good food like onions and leeks and so forth. And uh, we remember all of the stories from the uh, wilderness wanderings. But that's the Passover that Jesus was celebrating during that week-long feast of unleavened bread. And that's what we see him coming to. Now, there's a lot of uh, discussion in, um, in scholarly circles, biblical circles, that we're not going to get into today about when was Jesus eating it. Why did he eat his Passover early before the feast? On Thursday, which was the preparation day for the next day, Friday, Good Friday, Jesus was tried and crucified. And then they took him off the cross quickly for the actual holiday where other people would be eating their Passover, which would be that Saturday. But this is Thursday, the first day of that week-long feast that Jesus, knowing what was coming, longing to eat that Passover meal with his disciples, told them to get it ready and prepare it. They were having it then and there. And that's what we're going to be seeing today. As I mentioned, we often refer to this in many ways. One of them is, as the message shows today, the Lord's Supper, based on the Last Supper of Jesus before his crucifixion in the upper room. And we take that name from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul, in correcting the abuses surrounding their practice of the Lord's Supper, refers to it as that. He says, when you do it this way, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. It's something else. It's just like a crazy potluck where half the people are hungry, people are getting drunk. He says, it's not what it should be. It's not the Lord's Supper. And so that's how Paul refers to it. Some churches call it the Eucharist, which has its roots in the biblical account as well, because Eucharist means thanksgiving in Greek. And it is the cup of thanksgiving, as we'll see a little bit later. Now, we'll look through the scripture slowly, but before we do that, let's just, uh, if we can, bring down these uh, platform lights, and uh, something that I wanted to do today is take the visual Bible, the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's going to be the New International Version, we're going to have those verses beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 14, if you're at home, you can read along, but in the background, you'll see what's happening as described by the verses being read. Let's see if we can get that video going. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. 
While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Yes. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's wonderful to see uh, the uh, portrayal visually as we can see the uh, what's happening as described in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, just want to draw your attention to a few things there in the brief time remaining to us this morning. So you saw at the beginning of that passage, or rather heard at the beginning of that passage, it was the day of preparation and Jesus wanting to celebrate that Passover meal, that memorial meal sent his disciples into Jerusalem. Remember, they, they would overnight outside of the city, generally in the village of Bethany, sent them into the city to prepare the room for the Passover. And I believe that tells us that it is important. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, preparation is important. It reminds us of the importance of preparation. The importance of preparation. Uh, the picture there, it, I don't know how well you can see it, but it's... Mostly paintings of the Passover, the Last Supper, of course, have Jesus at the center and his disciples gathered around him in the candlelight. But I've found that fascinating. It's a painting of the room, the upper room of the Passover, with the table prepared, waiting the arrival of Jesus and his disciples. They found it, as Jesus said, a furnished room prepared for them. And I like it because it's very accurate. The type of dining table we see there is a triclinium. It was a table like a squared off U shape. And Jesus and his disciples would gather around that. It was a low table, low to the ground. They would recline at the table with their left elbow on the table, their feet sticking out from their uh, reclining mats, and then they would eat with their right hand. You never could eat with your left hand. That was your unclean hand. Those many of you here today are left-handed people. You would be a 
clumsy eater, you know, because you would have to eat with your right hand. And uh, so uh, that's, the, that's the table that has been prepared, a preparation. Just to remind us of that passage that we've just seen acted out for us, uh, verses 12 to 16 in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14, we read that on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that was like an eight-day feast, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house as the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, that's an amazing, miraculous passage itself. They went in, and just as we see very similar to Jesus in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he told them, knowing ahead of time what they would find when they went, and this time, rather than uh, a donkey and it's full, here he said, you're going to go into that busy city and right away you're going to see a man carrying a water jar. Now we'd say, well, which one? Well, in that culture, men didn't carry water jars. That should be a clue right there. That was, I hate to say it, but in that culture, that was woman's work. Remember the woman at the well, the, the town women came to draw water? To see a man carrying a water jar would catch their attention right away. They followed him to the home, and the owner of the home seemed to know who the rabbi, the teacher was, and had a room all ready for them. Now, it's interesting as this is recorded, it's very possible that the house they celebrated the Passover in was the house of John Mark, a great Christian family, a family of Christ followers in the early church. The upper room was like the center, the headquarters of the early church, and that was the parents of John Mark the nephew of Barnabas, the disciple. So Mark, as he's writing this gospel, he's probably accounting something from his own memory. I don't know. One day I'll have a chance to ask him. He might even be the man carrying the water jar in this story. So here is Jesus. He goes there and it's prepared for them. As I mentioned earlier, the Passover initially was a simple meal. It contained unleavened bread, roast lamb, and bitter herbs. But by Jesus' time, a Jewish tradition had added numerous other symbolic items to that meal, including the cup, which Jesus gives new meaning to. In fact, they, uh, during the course of the Passover uh, meal, they had a, a service they had developed, almost a liturgy. There were four different times where they would take the cup and give thanks for it. And there were other items on the menu that had symbolic meaning like eggs. Believe it or not, a Passover meal had eggs. It had multiple uh, vegetable dishes. It had almost like trail mix. It would have honey and nuts and berries mixed together. Uh, there were a number of dishes at that meal, about seven symbolic uh, items. And it seems that that was already that type of developed memorial meal when Jesus comes there, which the disciples were preparing. But friends, it's not only the physical preparation for the Passover meal and that physical preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, it included cleaning your house top to bottom, looking for any yeast or leaven which be in your house and getting rid of it, making sure it was consecrated and yeast-free because leaven was a symbol of sin when it came to this feast. 
Well, I think that also should speak to us with the Lord's table about spiritual preparation. And I don't base that on my own idea. This is found right in Scripture in that corrective chapter when it comes to the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul in verse uh, 27 and 28, he speaks to them. He said, Therefore, whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. The Apostle Paul is telling them to spiritually prepare their hearts. Just as in the past, the Jewish mothers would check their house top to bottom and clean it and have it ready to celebrate the Passover. As we come to the Lord's table, we're told to examine our hearts. Is there any leaven of sin and is there any any habit, anything that has hold on us which displeases God. The Bible says to keep short accounts. If you have sin, confess it. Find forgiveness and freedom from it as you come to the table. As often as you do it, it helps you to keep short accounts and be mindful of that. So spiritual preparation is as important as the physical preparation of Jesus' time. Now we read when they come there, as you see in the account, as you saw visually presented uh, the scripture today, it told us the story of Judas at that table. In this passage, we see the sinful heart revealed. Remember, we're told to examine our hearts. But at that table, Jesus had them examine their hearts. When he announced that one of them would betray him, one of the very twelve, they all began to look at their hearts and ask, Lord, is it me? Could it be me? And Jesus, in that act, he revealed the traitor's heart, the sinful heart at the table. Back in Mark chapter 14, continuing to read in verse 17, it says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. It's very powerful. And Judas, it seems, was right beside Jesus dipping the sop of bread in the bowl with Jesus. Now, this implies, but as we saw, Judas leaving. But if you notice, the scripture of Mark being read on the screen never mentioned Judas leaving. He just got up and left. Because we know from the other gospel accounts that he did. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar. Mark is the shortest. Matthew and Luke elaborate and add more to it, but follow the same basic structure in many of the passages the gospel of john though john the beloved disciple the longest living of the disciples he wrote the gospel of john decades after the other three gospels were already in the hands of the church and god laid upon his heart to write a gospel that included much more that jesus said and did that the other gospels didn't include Oftentimes, that includes Jesus' longer speaking situations, including in the upper room. You know, John has 
John has three or four chapters of Jesus speaking after sharing the Passover meal before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. If it wasn't for the Gospel of John, the so-called upper room discourse, and all of that important teaching, we wouldn't have it. But God's Spirit putting his word together, the Bible, led John to write that Gospel. Now, I mention that because in John 13, this chapter, John mentions from his own memory what Judas did at this point in the meal. Jesus dipped the bread, gave it to Judas, and we read in uh, John chapter 13, it says, Jesus says, in verse 27, it says, what you are about to do, he says to Judas, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread that Jesus dipped, he went out and it was night. I find it amazing that Jesus, knowing the heart of Judas, the betrayer, whatever you're going to do, he said, do it quickly. And Judas went out. And that sinful heart, that betraying heart, was not at the table when Jesus broke the bread. It wasn't there. And nor should it be with us. As we see again in uh, 1 Corinthians, those passages, those people, they weren't recognizing that what they were doing spoke of that profound truth that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. They were taking it for granted. They were having a feast, a party. And they were doing it in an unworthy manner. Don't get me wrong. When scripture says you need to celebrate that and do it in a worthy manner, it doesn't mean that you are the worthy one. (laughs) It reminds me of the old story I heard years ago of a, a Scottish pastor in a little church. They would celebrate the Lord's table and there was a woman in the church that would never partake. She felt she wasn't good enough. They would, they would have the bread in the cup. And she would stay seated and, and just be quietly in tears. And one Sunday, the, the pastor couldn't take it anymore. And the Lord led him. He took the bread and the cup and he walked boldly up to her and he handed it to her. And he said, sister, it's for sinners. How true is that? Friend, you don't have to be perfect to partake it. That's not what worthiness means. Worthiness means that you're a sinner recognizing You need Jesus and what he did for you, giving his body to the tree and shedding his blood, that counts for you and you recognize it in gratitude and rejoice in it. You don't take it for granted and just drive over it and be inattentive to it. That would be in an unworthy manner. And once again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 29, the apostle Paul continues to speak of that. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Once again, this is part of the preparation, recognizing what we're there for. The apostle Paul says that church is full of people who are weak and sick and number who have died. That tells me that God is withholding blessing from them because of the sin in their lives. The Lord says if we are trained by that, it becomes discipline and, and has a harvest of peace and righteousness and holiness in our lives. But, but uh, the Lord's table is not something that we take lightly. 
We recognize it. And the reality is, as we see a little bit later, the reality is the incredible meaning it has. As we continue in this passage, we see that Jesus then takes elements of that memorial meal and he gives meaning to them. Jesus gives meaning to the bread and the cup. Now remember, the unleavened bread, that had been part of the Passover meal from time immemorial, back to the time of the the escape from Egypt. But the cup, well, the cup was common in all meals. The basis of every meal in that land was bread and wine. The wine was not drank straight. It was it was diluted with water. The, uh, the wine would uh, be an antibacterial agent that would keep the water clean and healthy for the people. That was the sustenance of life. But in that memorial meal, it had taken even greater meaning as the cup was taken <clears throat> at four different occasions and they were able to uh, rejoice and give thanks to God through the cup. Jesus now, at that meal, he founds a new memorial going forward. We read in verse 22 of Mark chapter 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Gave it to his disciples saying, take, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. He said to them, a very brief explanation of the bread and the cup. We find longer explanations in other gospel accounts. But it's interesting that Jesus, in this even brief account, gave the new meaning to it. It was to remind us always of his death. His death for us. His atoning death for us. The death that brought a new covenant of God's love and relationship with men and women who put their faith in Jesus. The old covenant, based on the law, that convicted us of our sin. But only the new covenant and the shed blood of Jesus, the sinless one who dies for sinners, in the new covenant, we who have been convicted by sin, by the law, we're forgiven. We're redeemed. The price for our salvation is paid. And First Peter Chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, those familiar passage, tell us that incredible price that Jesus paid. Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That precious price. That Jesus paid. That redeeming price is the meaning Jesus gave to the elements of the bread and the cup. We don't see it in Mark. But Luke, as he has a fuller account of what was spoken in that, he tells us that remembrance is to going forward to always be part of the meal. Remembering. <clears throat> and in remembrance, we look back and it blesses us. In remembrance. In Luke chapter 22. Look at Luke's account of it. Luke says. Then he took bread. Gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them saying. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you in remembrance of me. That's quoted again and again by the Apostle Paul, that Jesus wanted us to do this as often as we do it, remembering him. What a blessed thing remembrance is memorials. I have a picture here. You often see it from the outside. This is a picture from the inside of the beautiful Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. When I was 17 years old, I took a school trip to Washington, and we were able to walk and go into the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Memorial. I spent most of my time in the Smithsonian Institute being a nerd that I am, all of the history. I was in hog heaven. I don't know if that's a biblical term. Don't use that, hog heaven. I was happy. But in the Lincoln Memorial, even as a, as a callow youth, a 17-year-old, you go into it because it's, it's actually designed like a, like a Greek temple. It looks like the Parthenon from the outside. But you go in, and in the central, it's divided in three parts. You see in the central part is the statue of President Lincoln, the assassinated president, who died at the very end as they celebrated uh, peace and victory in the Civil War. The night of that celebration, he was he was shot by John Wilkes Booth. And then there's columns, and in the two side areas, there are the words of Lincoln. On the uh, north side, it's the words from his second inaugural address. And on the south side, it's the famous words from the Gettysburg Address. It's, it's, it's an incredible place. But as you go there, as solemn as it is, you don't worship President Lincoln. You're thankful for who he was and what he did. But he's a, he's a dead person from the past. You look back at those events and you, you think about them with your mind, but that's all you do. And you might feel gratitude briefly. Friends, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, when we are looking back, we're not remembering a dead man like Abraham Lincoln. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Friends, we enter into communion with Jesus. He is as alive today as He was the day He sat at that table so long ago. And when we come to that table, He's still our host. And when we take part of the bread and cup, it still comes to us from His hand and we rejoice in His death for us. He's a living Savior. It's different. One of the things that it does in giving gratitude, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it reminds us that we do it together of the incredible unity there is in the body of Christ. Paul asks a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving, that's where Eucharist comes from, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. Paul says you are one in Christ. And you are participating actively in that salvation act. The blood of Jesus is saving today as it did when Jesus initiated this. It's different. We are participating with Jesus in that ongoing celebration of his love for lost mankind. That's powerful. 
Not only does it remind us of unity, but Lord, Lord, thank you, he reminds us of the love of Jesus. John 13, we often run right by it, but I love verse 1 of John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's the cross. He showed us his love. And we can't celebrate that and remember Jesus' death for us without remembering once again how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Jesus. And to give thanks for it, fresh and new. When you taste the cup and the bread, you are being actively reminded of his love for you today. The love of Jesus. Oh, friends, we wear down, we get tired, we grow weary. I don't know about you, but I am so weary of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, I look forward to the day when it is just a memory. We need perseverance, and remembering Jesus gives us that perseverance. The book of Hebrews says that if you want to have perseverance and be able to carry on, you fix your eyes on Jesus Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Are you weary today? Is your heart sore? Turn your eyes to Jesus. This week, we look ahead to November 1st, Communion Sunday. We have all week to prepare ourselves, examine our hearts, and be ready to celebrate fresh and new our participation in Jesus' ongoing salvation of lost mankind. He gives us strength to carry on. We always talk about it in remembrance, and that's looking back. But in every account of Jesus in the upper room, the Lord's Supper, He looks ahead. And I'm sure when he says that, he's got a smile on his face. Until he comes. It has a future component. Until he comes, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming his death and looking forward to seeing him again. Until he comes. Remember what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. It says, Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're looking forward to it. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And the two passages mark the brief passage and then, and then Matthew, a little bit longer passage. Look at the difference here as that graphic reminds us of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Mark, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine It won't pass my lips, Jesus says, until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And Matthew adds something important to that. Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus says, this is a promise I'm going to keep. It's a reminder, not only of the past, but of the future. When you Take that bread and you drink that cup. Remember, Jesus is waiting for you. 
when God's children are gathered around that table one day, He will lift the cup and we will be together, home at last and forever. So it's a wonderful, wonderful, encouraging forward part to it as well. Well, friends, as we've looked into this passage today, I'm already excited about next Sunday. Though it's our little, <laughs> I love how we've celebrated communion in the past as we partake of, of that one loaf and we pass it and we from hand to hand and now with the little individual servings that kind of separates us physically, but you can't separate us spiritually. We're one. We're the family of God. And Jesus is looking forward to having us all home one day. Until then, we celebrate His love for us and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's close our eyes and close our time together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. Lord, Your Word takes us once again to the upper room where Jesus looked at those around the table, men in fear of the authorities, in fear for their master's life. Lord, he said comforting words like, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. And Lord, part of that wonderful time was not only the words he spoke, but he gave us a gift to remember him by. The Lord's Supper. And Lord, as we prepare for that next week, may we examine our hearts and keep short accounts with you. Lord, there is none here who lives a perfect life. We won't be perfect until... We see Jesus face to face. But till then, Lord, we want to grow in grace and to be like Jesus more and more each day. And Lord, that supper is a reminder of that. And so until we celebrate it together next Sunday, Lord, keep it in our hearts and minds. Help us to remember Jesus' death for us, His great love shown as we look back and to look forward to seeing You one day face to face. Until then, Lord, watch over Your people. Give them perseverance and strength for the challenges of these days. We trust you for all of this. And we pray it in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless you.